our imagined reality is dependent on having the right ideals. And so in order to get a really good grip on life, we've got to have some really good ideals. How about God's ideals? Let's get a grip on God's ideals. That's the name of our series on the Biblical Channel here, and this time we're talking about getting a grip on the ideals that God lays out in the Bible, and this is absolutely essential. We're going to look at five ideals that come up in the first two chapters of the Bible, and so one of the things that we find the most important thing to do here on the Biblical Channel is to actually read God's words, and in this series, um, we're kind of all over the place. Uh, not like we normally do uh, by just opening up a book and covering it um, in detail, but we're looking at it from a big picture standpoint, and we're looking at it from the whole Bible itself. But this time we are going to just dive into the first two chapters of Genesis. I'm not going to read the first two chapters of Genesis, just parts of it, um, so we get a sense of what it is that we're talking about. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that's what we're talking about and out of this, we're going to find God's ideals, well, really from the beginning to the end. He's not going to change his mind, and these are five really good ideals. So let me just say, I'm going to read some selections out of those first two chapters. I encourage you to read the whole thing. But it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form or void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then there's this large section where there's a pattern. And the pattern is, and God said, let there be, and there was, evening and morning, it was good the next day. And that keeps going day after day after day. Let there be. And there was, it was good, there was evening and morning the next day. Then you get to a section, chapter 1, still, and, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll just look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the flesh, fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then we roll into chapter 2, and again, I'm going to skip down here to verse 8 of chapter 2 and say, and the Lord God planted a garden in, the e in Eden in the east, and there he put the man 
whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was also in the garden. And remember, chapter 2 starts off with, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work, and all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. And a little bit later in chapter 2, we find that uh, the Lord God said, it's not good that man would be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. On down in verse 23, it says, then the man said, woo, woo, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Well, that's where we're going to end, you know, our kind of summary reading, just reading some highlights. Um, it's good stuff in between, too, and I encourage you to read it. I'm not trying to skip any hard stuff. Um, and we'll cover what we should be noticing out of these first two chapters in the Bible. And if we're ever going to read the Bible right, this is what we have to get right first. So in order to get things right, we ought to invite God, who is in the Bible, and God, who is in our lives, and God, to whom we pray for. And we ought to pray like Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Heavenly Father, we come to see you and to see ourselves and to get in our head your ideals. Okay, so there we are. And, and this whole section, um, or I'm sorry, this part of our series, Getting a Grip, is really focused on getting a grip on God's ideals. And the first two chapters of Genesis are really all about getting those ideals firmly in place because the whole storyline of the Bible is never going to let these five ideals go. Nothing's going to change in any book of the Bible the whole way to the very end. And if we think about ideals, think about it this way. An ideal is a virtue or it's a goal or it's what we are shooting for. Um, and God himself has ideals, and if we get God's ideals, then we'll know what God is shooting for. We'll know what God is getting to, and what he's going towards, and what he's bringing us towards as well. And the, the benefit in all of this is that when we have God's ideals moving in our brain, our imagined reality becomes very powerful, and it becomes very real in this world, and it helps us to live in this world with God's ideals in mind, which helps us to be motivated and to live in this world in the best possible means. So the secret to success is having the right ideals, and I cannot think of any other ideals that would be righter than God's ideals. So let's get God's ideals firmly fixed in our minds when we look at these first two chapters in Genesis. Okay, so ideal number one. 
ideal number one that is pretty hard to miss, unless, of course, you're just in the habit of getting into the weeds and missing the point. And that always reminds me of Foghorn Leghorn, who often tells that little chick, son, you're missing the point. Pay attention to me when I'm talking to you, son. So the first point in the first two chapters of Genesis is loud and it's glaring, and you do get it. And it's just this. God is the creator. Genesis chapter 1, loud and clear, God is the creator. I oftentimes come around to thinking about how funny it is that as human beings, how small we are, and how we recognize that we didn't make this place, and we don't even know a person that has made this place. And when I'm talking about this place, I'm talking about planet Earth and the solar system and everything that we see around us. And what it ought to do to us is it ought to freeze us in our tracks. And, 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 and gosh, I think we ought to fall to our knees and say, oh my gosh, where am I and what's going on? What is the meaning of all of this? That is the comforting message of God being the creator. That is the basic answer to the question that we should all have. Genesis chapter 1 is establishing the fact that God created it. That God created is the point. Now, here's how you can really get off track right off the bat. If your brain, which gets off, getting off task is like my brain sometimes, uh, if, if, if I'm, I'm one of those guys, I can miss a point pretty easy. And if you want to miss the whole point, then get super focused on what is meant by the six days of creation. Are we talking 24 hours in a day? Are we talking about something different? Are we talking about six literal days as we know them? If that's what you're thinking about, stop. Pull yourself away for a second. Hear the big point. The big point is that God is the creator. The place that you're in, everything you understand around you has been made, and it's been made by God. There's purpose in all of this. There's meaning in all of this because there is a creator. And so that's the only real point that is being made. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is no doubt a piece of literature. Maybe Moses wrote it. Maybe it was given to Moses. Um, But the point is, is that never in Moses' imagination, never in the original audience's imagination, was God creating this need to, to, you know, think of him creating in six literal days. If he did, good. If he didn't, I don't care, because it's not the point that this piece of literature is making. It is making the loud declarative statement that God created. So, so obviously, when other people read the Bible, you know, they read it, you know, with a bit of cheekiness in mind, or perhaps sarcasm in mind, or perhaps just a little mischief in mind, and, and they read it in a way that, that is, is deconstructing, trying to find that one card that will bring the whole house of cards down. And I would encourage you, don't do that. That's being cheeky. That's being mischievous. Hear the main point and absorb the message that's behind that main point. And that is, wow, God is the creator. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two 
that you don't want to miss is the repetition um, that comes out of these first six days of creation. And God said, so God's a speaker. We'll cover that later, but, and God said, let there be, and there was. So what God says, he accomplishes, okay? When he creates, he speaks to what he wants, and he gets it. It's a pretty authoritative, you know, kind of thing that you can just speak something, but then it becomes something, okay? And then the other part of the pattern is that, you know, there is a day and the next day, but every time it is good. So the second big point to take away here is that creation is good. What God creates is good. In chapter 1, verse 31 that we read, it's even very good. So this is interesting for us because many religious beliefs or beliefs religiously will hold that there is the material world and the spiritual world and that the material world is far inferior to the spiritual world. In fact, many religious beliefs think that there's really not a lot to be had in the material world. There's nothing much to it. It it might even be icky. It might even be gross. It might not even be worth touching. But then there's the spiritual world. That's the really good stuff. The Bible will have none of this when it comes to this kind of division in our mindsets. Instead, the Bible recognizes there is a spiritual component, there is a material component. They're two different things, but they are meant to be in harmony and working together as one. But the bigger point to be made here is that the material world is good because God created it. It is good. The world that we have around us, when we see its beauty, when we, when we like it, we're supposed to like it because it's good. We're supposed to like good things. God declares in the Bible very uniquely that the material world is very good. Spiritual world's very good too, but the material world is very good because God created it. Once again, that's a big point that, that you have to take away from Genesis chapter 1. Now, of course, you know, you might want to ask that question, why is there so much bad? Well, that is a good question, and we're going to hold the big discussion on that in the next talk that we have. But suffice to say right now, I'll give you a hint to the answer to that question, biblically speaking, and and that is that it's not God's doing. The troubles, the bads, the hurts, the hang-ups, the, you know, everything that's wrong about this world, it's not God's doing. And it doesn't take very you know, much searching to find out who's creating the problems. We'll let you soak on that for just a little bit. But this is the big story of the Bible. The big story of the Bible is is that God is committed to what he created being good. And it's his commitment to what he created being good that keeps the story going. So in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of the hurts, the pains, the hang-ups, you know, everything that we experience, part of the message 
of understanding, or part of the ideal of understanding that what God creates is good, is that he is committed to making sure that what he started as good is going to end up good. You see, God's a good God. He's committed to goodness. Goodness is his thing. We're the ones who are confused on the issue of goodness, not God. They're not confused. Okay, now, third point. Third point out of the same stuff, Genesis chapter 1, still making points. Third point is, God's the boss. So, once again, it's an implied, you know, kind of message that you, that you easily come away with whenever you read Genesis chapter 1. And if you didn't, you should. But God being the creator means that God is the boss. And so Genesis chapter 1, after, when it's all said and done, creates this overwhelming impression that, yes, indeed, we have a boss. It's implied. And again, other religious beliefs will think that they're saying something very, very clever and very profound. They scratch their chin and they even pray about it, you know. But one of the things that's very common to think about is that God is actually in the creation. And so that he actually is the creation and that he's kind of in all of it, that he's kind of bound up, you know, intertwined. I don't mean to get all scientific with you and stuff, but but anyhow, that God is intermixed with the creation itself. Once again, the Bible puts a full stop on that. The Bible makes it very clear creation is something very different than God, that he, God, created what we experience in life. The material world is the product of God's creation, and that the most important point of all of this is that we get it, that we get that God created it all which puts him in a pretty unique position as the boss, and that means we're not the boss, that we're actually meant to work with the boss, that we're actually meant to, you know, trust the boss and be working in, you know, continuity with the boss. But God is boss. Make no doubt about that. I want to read for you um, a psalm that, you know, throughout the Bible you can find passages like this. But I want to read a couple passages that make this point clear. And that is, uh, how about Psalm 95? It reads, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise with him, with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all God's in his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the sea is his, he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, God, our maker. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And I love this phrase, it says, today, if you hear his voice, and these are his words, but if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. One of the biggest troubles that we have as human beings from a biblical standpoint is that we harden, harden our hearts because we don't recognize our position, that we don't recognize that creation establishes that God is the boss. And that means that we 
have a boss. The most important thing as far as God's ideals for us to, to really take away is that he's our boss. He is the boss of all bosses. Um, and we're supposed to have a good relationship with the boss. We're supposed to be doing things like the boss would do things. We're supposed to be doing things like the boss wants things done. It's an ideal. It's part of the ideal package. The Bible ends with a solid picture of the same thing where creation gets it. The Bible ends with the, you know, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is what it sounds like when we get the fact that God is the boss, when we get that we are created, and so because we are created, we give recognition to who created us, and that's the boss. If you're the creator, you're the boss. That's the point. Okay, Genesis chapter 1 also makes a huge point in this ideal, and that is there is something very special out of all the things that God creates. There is something very special that God himself determines, and it goes like this. That thing, out of all the things that God created, that thing that is occupying the most special place in all of creation is people. That's why I'm wearing this t-shirt, We the People, because it's one of the big points in the opening of Genesis, is that we are the people of God, meaning that we have a very different relationship to God because God made it that way, and the way that the Bible talks about that relationship is this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. One of the, uh, you know, the big ideals here is that as human beings, as people, we have a very special relationship with God because he made us in his image. Now, once again, you want to get off track? I'll tell you how to get off track. Start thinking to yourself, oh, does that mean God looks like me? Or does that mean I look like God? Or does that mean I am God? Or you think about it, you're thinking about it completely wrong. I can understand how you might go there for a second, but the but the idea is that on one hand, we are an animal just like any other animal. We have flesh, we have blood, we have a heart that beats, you know, and we have instincts and we have impulses. We have the desire to, to feed ourselves and put a shelter over our head and to procreate, you know, um, to make little ones of ourselves. You know, yeah, sure. On one level, we are no different than the animals, but the Bible makes it very clear that people are very different to the animals because none of the animals, none of the mountains, none of the insects, none of the birds, none of the other parts of God's creation is given this special gift by God of being in his image. And it's not about what we look like, and it's not about what God looks like. It's about how we are to act. It's, it's about bearing God's image. It's about you know, being image bearers. It's about being God's number two. Out of all of the things that he created, he created people 
to actually be his number two. He's the boss. But the special way that we have been created is that we can actually relate to the boss so that we can actually be the boss's number two. Oh, sure. And there is complete room for all seven billion of us to actually be God's number two. God is God. He can do stuff like that. I can't. I can't keep track of seven billion number twos to me, but God can. And the invitation for people is to get a grip on that ideal, is that you have been designed to be God's image bearer, that you're designed by God to understand God, to relate to God, and to act like God would act in any given situation. You have the capacity. You have the ability. Why? Because God gave you the image of God. He gave you that capacity. And notice, too, that he didn't just give it to the men. He gave it to the males and to the females. Males and females, from Genesis chapter 1 to the very end of the Bible, are both made in the image of God. Once again, people can be very cheeky. They can be very, you know, uh, mischievous in the way that they talk, and they pretend like the Bible is misogynistic, that the Bible puts women in the place of being barefoot and pregnant. No, you can only make that conclusion if you don't read the Bible. Here, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God made man in his own image. And if you think that he's just talking about the men, you're crazy because it goes on to say, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So whatever it means to be male comes from God. Whatever it means to be female comes from God. As people, male and female, both, whatever that means, comes from the image of God. The male and the female are both image bearers of God. There is no disruption or no inequality here. There is a complete equality here. And that point is also loud and clear. There's no funny business going on here. Read it for yourself. Think about it. And think about the power behind that statement, that both are intended to have a very special place on the planet, a very special place in the midst of all of the things that God creates to be image bearers, to be his number two. Yes, the women and the men are invited to be God's number two. Yes, we are supposed to be under God, under his management, under his caring ways, doing things the way, well, loving things and caring for things the way he would, ruling, you know, as he would rule. That is the weight and responsibility of being the image bearers, the coyotes, the dolphins, the, the uh, stick bugs, you know, nothing has been given the responsibility and the weight and the capacity of being an image bearer, but we have, the people have. And so that's an important ideal. Now, the fifth ideal, the fifth ideal is, is an ideal that many people miss. They shouldn't, but the ideal is, is, is that little place in chapter two we were, where we read that the last day, the seventh day, is the true climax of all of creation, because God's done working. And now it's time, now it's time for rest. Now, this does not mean 
that God needs a nap, that God got all tired out and uh, took a nap on the seventh day. That's nuts. What it does mean is that the seventh day, and pay attention as you read it, every other day ends. The seventh day has no end. Why doesn't the seventh day have an end? Because it's the true climax of God's creation. It's, it's the place where God now wants his creation in his rest. I think of chill. I think of, you know, being chill, you know, being in a good spot, being in a, a, a spot where there's not a whole lot of worries and cares and concerns, but there's just this good chill environment, the rest of God, that the goal of God creating was to enter into rest on the seventh day. It's a wonderful concept. It's a big, big ideal that is going to start here in Genesis 1, and it's going to go the whole way to the end. It is absolutely essential to, to understand that God's goal for your life is to be in his rest, to be in his chill relationship, to be in his good relationship, to enjoy the good life with God. It's, it's not about God taking a holiday. It's about the good life with God. That's what rest is all about here. And strangely, I think we miss that point that this is one of the most important ideals, that we, as his creation, have been created to enter into rest with him. And so chapter 2 gives us this great picture of great relationships. Because in chapter 2, as we read, in chapter 2 we see that God has great relationship with the people, who happened to be Adam and Eve at the time, but there's still a great relationship there to be had. It's what God had intended. It seems to be a pretty chill environment that the, the man and the woman relate well together. In fact, Adam is just so excited that, you know, he's got a wife. Pumped up they are together. And they're in this environment, they're in this environment, this, you know, created environment, the garden that God has made. And it's wonderful. And we see that there's work and there's trust in this environment, um, and there's this totally chill environment. So that is that is the whole point of of the seventh day, is this eternal bliss, this eternal happiness, where everything between God and people, men and women, people and creation are in complete harmony with each other. Now, if you're saying to yourself, well, it certainly isn't like that, you're right. You're right. So that is the main part of these ideals. You have to know how the world is meant to be when it comes to God. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are explaining in a very simple way the way everything is meant to be. Very, very important in your own ideal set to have that ideal, to know that that's where God is taking things. And that because he's committed to his goodness of his creation, that's where he's going to take it. He's God. He'll get his way. We have to be assured of that. I am assured. <laughs> 
that God will get his way, that he will get his good way. Despite what human beings try to do, God will get his way in the end. And that is what starts the story and becomes the story and what ends the story. It's all united in a very wonderful package that we call the Bible. It's biblical. So, you know, if we think about, you know, God and people, you know, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 established this really nice picture of trust and work and a chill environment. And when we think of the man and the woman, we see that there's wonderful harmony there. They're working together, and they're not only just working together, they're working with God. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You might be thinking to yourself, oh, Billy, Billy, Billy. But it says that, you know, Eve was made as a helper, and there you go. She was made to be man's slave. That's what the Bible is saying. You are crazy. That is not what the Bible is saying, especially, let me give you two points to, to tell you how wrong you are. As the Bible will continue to unfold, God will tell more and more about himself. And when God reveals more and more about himself to Moses and the people of Israel, to Abraham, to, to you know, throughout the pages of the Bible, you will keep coming to this idea that God identifies himself as the helper. If God identifies himself as the helper for human beings, you ought to be thinking differently about Eve when God determines that it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates a helper for man. Let me just put this in simple English for you. Man ain't good on his own. Man needs help. Men need help. That's what a woman is. A woman is the exact kind of help that a man needs. Without women, men would be completely disastrous. We're already disastrous. You know that. I know that. The idea that Eve is made as Adam's helper is not some sort of weird subordination but actually an elevation of her role with Adam, with man, with men. I don't mind telling you that my wife keeps me from living a disastrous life. Left me on my own? Disaster. Train wreck everywhere. Uh, can't open worms everywhere, that kind of stuff. With my wife, she is the strong part of us. She keeps me on track. She keeps me focused. She is the help that I need. She's not my little helper. She is the help that I need. And that is clear. Another little point to reinforce my concept here, if you think that I'm making a, you know, if I, I, I'm stretching it. Jesus has a name for the Holy Spirit. You know what that is? The helper. Yeah, if you want to get into the weeds, you'll go back to that Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and you'll say, oh, Billy, but it says, let us make man in our image, in, in our likeness. Oh, it must be that God is, is polytheistic. Is, there's more than one God here. Um, that is a strange thing to say. I will admit that until Jesus starts unpacking. See, 
that gives us the impression that there might be more than one God. And we might say, hmm, that's odd, because the Bible makes such a big deal out of God being only one God, monotheism, you know, that kind of stuff. But if we, if we, if we digest it right, and we hear Jesus right, Jesus co- keeps committed to the idea that there's only one God, but that God is Father, that God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit, while maintaining the fact, biblical fact at least, that there is one God. Now, if you and your human capacity are having trouble with that, I don't blame you, but it's just with the way Jesus talks about it. He talks about himself as God. He talks about the Father as God. He talks about the Holy Spirit as God. And so when Jesus nicknames the Holy Spirit the Helper, and we go back here and we look that, you know, Eve's, you know, kind of nickname is Helper. Do you think that puts her in a bad spot or in a pretty sweet spot when it comes to what God is saying about women? Okay, so men and women, men and women together, people and creation. The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we heard that uh, man and woman are called to have dominion over everything, to be good stewards over God's creation, to be conservationists, to be good managers, to be good number twos, to be able to take instruction, to be able to have the heart of God in everything that we do. This is the picture that is emerging out of the first two chapters of the Bible. And God will not change his mind in this storyline. And so as you read, as you read everything that comes up next, this big picture is the big picture always. These five ideals are always at play. God doesn't change these five ideals. He keeps with these five ideals. They will always remain the five ideals. Well, there's, there's other ideals too, but, but these ones will not change. And so that is what is so important about getting a grip on the Bible, is getting a grip on God's ideals, and understanding that God is so committed to these ideals that we have something to trust, that we have something to look forward to. And so the kingdom of God is clearly seen in these first two chapters in the ideal type of situation that God expects and God means to be for man and himself. And when it all comes to an end in the book of Revelation and the way that Jesus talks, it's still the same. There's still a rugged commitment to making sure that what God intended comes to be. Let me make my point in in another way. The Sabbath the seventh day of creation that comes up in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You see, Jesus picks up on this conversation about Genesis establishing a Sabbath rest, and then Israel had built into their fabric one day of Sabbath rest, and God seemed to be very, very serious about this Sabbath rest. But, but how did Jesus understand what the Sabbath was about? Was Jesus running around wagging his finger saying, you, you, you're doing the wrong thing on the Sabbath? No, everybody was wagging their finger at Jesus, who, hilariously speaking, is God, telling him that he doesn't understand the Sabbath. And Jesus is, is, is you know, 
caught telling the audience something that we need to digest. And what he tells the audience in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 28, is he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, because I will give you rest. You see what the goal of creation was? For us not to be weary, for us not to be burdened, but to be in rest with God. And then think about this too that Jesus says. Jesus turns to the audience again, identifying himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, in his own perception of himself, he is where the Sabbath is. He is where God's creation can find rest because he is God. And if he is God, then he's the one who invented the idea of the seventh day of rest to begin with. The goal of God's creation, being at rest with him. And see how when we have a grip on God's ideals, what Jesus talks about starts to make total sense. Because that is exactly what I want. I want to be God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing. And that is the very idea of the kingdom of God and God's ideals. The kingdom of God is when God puts everything right the way he meant it. And he is taking this creation to what he meant to begin with. He will not allow human beings to sidetrack the process. He is allowing this to happen so that we would find him, so that we would actually find this rest. And this rest is in the Lord of the Sabbath, who is Jesus. And Jesus' whole intention is to relieve you of your burdens and your worries so that you would be in a good relationship with God so that you'd be in a good relationship with men and women, that you'd be in good relationship even with the creation because you know God's ideals, because you have got a grip.